Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. First of all, I'm a theologian, not a philosopher. Um, I have some philosophy background. My, uh, my political science master's was kind of a philosophy degree under the cover of the uh, political science department. Uh, so I guess I know just enough philosophy to be dangerous. Uh, additionally, uh, although I do do a lot of uh, uh, philosophical theology when I'm doing moral theology, uh, I don't come entirely out of the same moral philosophical school of thought that both uh, Dr. Lee and also Dr. Moskella, our other panelists, uh, come out of. I, I have some disagreements with it, which will come up um, during the course of my remarks here. Uh, mostly, however, I want to say that I very much like the book, was very appreciative of it. Uh, it's probably the best recent book on the topic, certainly the best recent book that I know of on the topic. So if you haven't read it, you should do it. You should go out and buy the book and, and uh, give it a read. It's not a terribly long book. You uh, won't take too long to get through it. Um, I'm just going to go through, and I, I know that probably most of you haven't read the book, uh, and my remarks are going to be referencing some really specific things in the book, not all of which Dr. Lee uh, brought up in his uh, summary presentation. Uh, so I hope that that doesn't make this incoherent for those of you who haven't read the book. I'll, I'll do my best to explain what it is that I'm talking about in the book before I comment on it. Uh, and I'm going to go chapter by chapter, and, and uh, chapter one being a fairly brief chapter, I'm just going to make, mention one thing. Uh, I thought it was interesting and helpful that, uh, and this is on page eight of the book, uh, doctors Lee and George make a connection between two um, phenomena that we see today regarding marriage. One of them is that uh, more and more couples today uh, who are um, taking part in various kinds of marriage ceremonies uh, choose to write their own vows. And typically, as Lee and George point out, those couple-composed vows strongly emphasize, sometimes exclusively uh, refer to the emotional component of marriage. And Lee and George suggest that this is perhaps a reflection of the loss of awareness in our society of what they refer to as the institutional model of marriage, which they say integrates not only an emotional component, but with other key essential aspects of marriage as well uh, in a permanent union. Uh, and of course, a union that is uh, based entirely or mostly on emotions is less likely to be a permanent union because emotions are fleeting. Um, Similarly, they, uh, on the next page of the book, refer to the fact that these couple-composed vows are often worded in ways that they say deviate significantly from the historical norm for the wording of marriage vows. Uh, I have a couple of comments on that. I think that that's a very helpful suggestion that there's a connection between the way in which couples choose to write their own vows today and the loss of a sense of that, that the real meaning of marriage, that institutional meaning of marriage. Uh, the first comment I want to make about that is that I think that we can say even more than Lee and George do about what it means to speak of marriage as an institution. And I think it is an institution. Uh, it means not only that marriage has all the components to which they refer, but also it, I think, incorporates something else that they bring up later in the book in the fifth chapter, namely that marriage is a public reality. Marriage is something that pertains not only to the spouses, but 
also to the society of which they are a part. So for example, in chapter five on page 104, they write that spouses publicly vow to fulfill the responsibilities that flow from marriage and that the whole community is asked to testify to the fitness of the spouses to marry. And I might even add a further point to that. I might add that I think when a couple get married, the community is agreeing to do some things for them to help them to live as a married couple. And in fact, one of those things, certainly not the only thing, but one of those things is to perhaps hold them accountable in some ways for uh, actually fulfilling the promises that they're making to each other when they get married. Obviously, that aspect of marriage as an institution has been diluted a lot with no-fault divorce, but I don't think it's completely gone. I think that to some extent that's still true in our society, even if to a significantly lesser extent than uh, was the case a few generations ago. I would also say, <clears throat> regarding this institutional aspect of marriage, that it's one of the things about marriage that makes it not only, as Lee and George say on page 127, something larger than each individual, but even more than that, I think that this institutional aspect of marriage makes it something larger than just the couple themselves. When a couple marry, in the, I think, authentic sense of that term, they're entering into a reality that's larger than they are and that's prior to them. And circling back around to the point of couples wanting to write their own vows, it seems to me that when couples insist on doing that, then for the most part, regardless of the content of the vows that they write, it seems to me that they're already neglecting this institutional or public aspect of marriage, this idea of marriage as something prior to them and bigger than them that they're entering into. They're already kind of buying into the idea of marriage as something that a couple simply define for themselves and then ask others to join them in celebrating, as it were. Chapter two of the book is a chapter on natural law theory, and uh, Dr. Lee alluded to some of the elements of the natural law theory with which he and uh, Robbie George are working in the book when he spoke in his introductory remarks of the importance of the intrinsic goods of things like marriage and procreation. My uh, joking thought after reading chapter two was that it could almost have just been a footnote uh, to two things. First of all, John Finnis's book on Aquinas, which is in fact footnoted in the chapter. And secondly, three or maybe four chapters of Germain Grisey's uh, Way of the Lord Jesus, volume one. Uh, Finnis and Grisey being the founders of the school of thought regarding natural law uh, that is represented by this book. And, uh, uh, Grisey and Finnis were uh, mentors to Drs. Lee and George. A lot more could be said regarding this foundational topic of natural law theory than can be said in this panel presentation. Um, but there are aspects of this theory and of the arguments made on its behalf by its proponents that for what it's worth, 
Again, take this with a grain of salt. I know, just enough philosophy to be dangerous. Um, there are aspects of this theory that I've never found particularly persuasive. I do want to make clear that I think that the particular use of this natural law theory that is made in this book's subsequent chapters constitutes a very helpful and very strong argument regarding marriage, regarding what marriage is, and regarding the implications of that. But since the book does include this chapter on natural law theory itself, as well as the subsequent chapters kind of you know, making use of that theory, uh, a few thoughts, just a few thoughts by way of um, uh, comments on this chapter. Um, one thing that occurs to me, and I've seen this in other writings of people from this natural law school of thought, and I, I see it in this book too, I wonder whether when proponents of this school of thought make use of Aquinas's thought or otherwise interact with Thomas Aquinas's thought, um, I wonder if they're sometimes perhaps a little bit quicker than necessary to see uh, discontinuities or disharmonies or mistakes on Aquinas's part. Um, I think that there are some places in this chapter where that happens. Uh, one example would be uh, the reference on page 13 to quite different, quote, approaches to natural law reasoning in different places in Aquinas's Summa Theologiae itself. I think that's possible. I think it's possible that Aquinas is inconsistent regarding um, you know, what he means by natural law or how he thinks about natural law. But I wonder if we know that that's true. I wonder if further study of that question might not be warranted. Um, another example, on page 19 of the book, uh, there's a suggestion that, that good can mean pretty significantly different things in uh, what we call theoretical reasoning on the one hand, reasoning about what is, and practical reasoning on the other hand, that is to say reasoning about what ought to be, what, what ought to be done. Um, I'm a little unsure that the meaning of good in, for example, Summa Theologiae, Part one, question five, is terribly different from the meaning of good in, in the treatise on law, the section on natural law. Uh, which is not to deny, by the way, I do think there's a difference between theoretical reasoning and practical reasoning, but, but I wonder if there's this particular difference. Um, Referring to a particular uh, footnote in the book that I thought was interesting and that Lee and George used to try to uh, criticize the uh, way of thinking about natural law that speaks of actions as being in harmony with nature or contrary to nature. Um, this footnote, uh, the text at that point in the book, refers to the fact that Aquinas says that what he calls the emission of semen, uh, not within the marital act um, is necessarily immoral because it's contrary to nature. And the, the footnote raises the question, what about a medical procedure in which a doctor is pressing on a man's prostate gland to express semen for medical purposes? Uh, wouldn't Aquinas wouldn't Aquinas' treatment imply that that's immoral and it can't possibly be immoral? So the suggestion seems to be, therefore, there's a problem with Aquinas' reasoning there. Um, I wonder whether that kind of attempt at what seems, to, what seems to be an attempt at a reductio ad absurdum necessarily works as well as Lee and George think it does. Uh, there are at least a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that Aquinas maybe when he speaks of emission of semen means something a little bit more specific, something like emission of semen in a sexual type of act. Uh, my guess is that Aquinas 
never envisioned the sort of medical procedure that, that Lee and George are talking about. And I wonder if he would have said, as he so often says, one needs to make a distinction here, I, I distinguish. Uh, another possibility, of course, is that if Aquinas really does imply what Lee and George says that he implies, maybe he's right. Maybe we can't simply take it as a given and as certain that this procedure is morally licit. Uh, by the way, I suspect that it is, but I just can't say that I'm so certain that it is that I would want to use that as the basis for a kind of reductio ad absurdum uh, to refute something in Aquinas. A few other things in this chapter and putting Aquinas aside. On um, page 22, there's an interesting mention of virtue. Uh, a topic that's dear to my heart. I, I do a lot of what's sometimes called in the trade virtue ethics. Um, specifically, they write character traits such as virtues, vices, and omissions that are not chosen derive their moral quality from what we do actually choose. I'd be interested, I guess, in some further elaboration on what's being said here about virtues. It seems to me that virtues are basic aspects of human fulfillment or basic moral goods. It seems to me, for example, that if I choose to treat someone fairly, then one of the basic goods that I'm pursuing, not the only one, would be my own uh, development and practice and reinforcement of the virtue of justice. In my own thoughts about natural law theory, it seemed to me, in fact, that the good of one's own virtue provides an important bridge between the good of others, which I'm respecting when I act in accord with virtues like justice, and my own good. Or to put it differently, that thinking about the role of virtue in human life helps one to see kind of what's in it for me when I do what's really good to others or for others. Um, Page 31, I had something here I'm going to skip over, I think. Page 31, uh, Lee and George write, an unfair act, such as favoring one's close friend in a job selection, may involve pursuing a genuine good, though unduly neglecting its realization in someone not near and dear to me. Uh, I certainly think it's true that sometimes one is pursuing a genuine good even while doing something that's evil. Uh, of course, sometimes one is also pursuing just an illusory good when, when one is doing something evil. Uh, I wonder about this example, though, because I wonder, what is friendship? And in what sense is one pursuing genuine friendship when one unfairly gives one's friend something he doesn't deserve at the expense of not giving it to the person who does deserve it? Uh, I'm not sure if that's the pursuit of genuine friendship. I think perhaps one way to see that would be to think about the possible consequences if it comes out that the other person was treated unfairly, you know, the, the awkward, uh, perhaps very difficult position in which that would be, uh, that would then put one's, one's friend. Despite my questions about the natural law theory of Grise and Finnis that's at work in this book and that's elaborated in, in this chapter of the book, chapter two, I want to make clear that I don't disagree with everything that Grise or Finnis or Lee or George say about natural law reasoning. And I want to repeat that I think that the natural law argument regarding marriage made in the subsequent chapters of this book is a cogent argument, is a strong argument, is an excellent argument, uh, but quite possibly the strongest one that can be made about the meaning of marriage and the implications of this for issues like same-sex marriage and divorce. And I want to just close my treatment of chapter two by mentioning one thing in the chapter that I really appreciated, that I really found helpful. Uh, on page 29, Lee and George say that not everyone need be married to participate in certain ways in this basic human good. I think that's a 
really good insight, and I found that really helpful. Uh, a few things, not quite as lengthy, regarding chapters 3 through 5. I like the treatment in chapter 3 of the meaning of marriage and the relationship between marriage and procreation. Uh, I will note that I think it tracks very closely with what the church says about the meaning of marriage in canon law. Uh, the beginning of the section on marriage in canon law, canon 1055, section 1, says that in marriage, quote, a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life and which is ordered by its nature to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. So even though Lee and George are making a philosophical argument, not a Catholic theological or doctrinal argument, uh, I think it can be easily shown that their approach tracks closely with and in fact harmonizes perfectly with uh, a Catholic doctrinal or, or other Catholic theological approach. Um, I would also note that I think that there's some overlap between their treatment and the treatment of marriage and sexuality that we find in the pre-papal writings of St. John Paul II, uh, then Karl Wojtyla, uh, especially in his book, Love and Responsibility. He, I think, makes a good argument about why marital love, if it's going to be authentic love, authentically fulfilling to the spouses, and respect for marriages being ordered to procreation can't be separated. Marriage has to be thought of as a procreative type of relationship in order to be the type of relationship in which spouses will be genuinely loving each other rather than, in fact, uh, harming each other in certain ways. I also like the emphasis uh, on page 49 of the idea of procreation as the fruit of and as a gift supervening upon the marital relationship. I think it would be interesting and worthwhile to pursue the implications of this way of thinking uh, for uh, how we should deal with infertility, for what ways of dealing with infertility are and aren't morally licit. I think that that idea of procreation as a fruit and as a gift has some implications for that. Uh, on page 54, they write, when a couple have children, they do not begin a new community. Rather, the community they already have is enlarged, unfolds, and becomes a family. I think just by, I, I agree with that, and I think uh, one way to see how that could be elaborated further would be to quote just a brief passage from one of John Paul's papal writings, his Letter to Families, uh, which is a wonderful document, a tremendously theologically rich document, and I certainly recommend uh, reading it if you haven't. John Paul II writes in his Letter to Families, I have spoken of two closely related yet not identical concepts, the concept of communion and that of community. Communion has to do with the personal relationship between the I and the thou. Community, on the other hand, transcends this framework and moves toward a society, a we. The family as a community of persons is thus the first human society. It arises wherever there comes into being the conjugal covenant of marriage, which opens the spouses to a lasting communion of love and of life, and it is brought to completion in a full and specific way with the procreation of children. The communion of the spouses gives rise to the community of the family. The community of the family is completely pervaded by the very essence of communion. On page 55, my last comment on, actually my second last comment on chapter three, on page 55, Lee and George write, one might choose to enter the communion of marriage for its own sake. 
and for the sake of the reality of the marital communion, not just out of erotic desire or fear, for example. Uh, I think this is a point that is perhaps a neglected one in our society, especially the point about erotic desire. Um, it also occurs to me, thinking as a theologian, uh, that a similar point is made in the Old Testament, specifically in the prayer of Tobias and Sarah on their wedding night in the book of Tobit, chapter 8, uh, a, reading that, a passage that's familiar to me because it's one of the options provided by the church for the first reading at the nuptial mass. Tobias and Sarah say in their prayer that they're not marrying each other out of lust. And I think that uh, perhaps, since we're all inclined to various kinds of sins, it's good when we're approaching marriage, when we're thinking about whether marriage is our vocation, when we're thinking about who we should marry, when we're preparing for marriage, um, to bear in mind that even though sexual attraction can be really, really strong, and even though in itself it can be a good thing, uh, it can also be disordered in the form of lust, and that marriage and lust don't have to be, don't have to somehow go together. Um, my last comment regarding this chapter uh, concerns the argument that Lee and George make in this chapter against polygamy. Um, I think that their argument against polygamy uh, and specifically against polygamy in its most typical form, that is to say, one man and multiple women rather than the other way around, I think that their argument against polygamy is stronger than Aquinas's. Aquinas makes a natural argument against polygamy of this sort, but he thinks that this kind of polygamy is opposed to natural law in a more kind of a secondary way rather than in a primary way. I think that Lee and George make a stronger argument, and I think that that's helpful in our society, given that in our society, today, there's a kind of renewed pro-polygamy, or as it's sometimes called, pro-polyamory uh, movement. Um, and as Lee and George say in the fifth chapter on page 126, this movement has some things in common with the pro-same-sex marriage movement. The same kind of underlying view of marriage um, gives rise to both. Just a few things from chapter four. I like the sexual integrity argument. Lee and George make what they call a sexual integrity argument against intercourse outside of marriage. I think it's a very strong argument. My thought about it is that it could probably also be restated as what I would call a virtue ethics argument. Uh, I think that sexual integrity is a strong component, an important component of what's often called the virtue of chastity, which is part of the virtue of temperance, which is in turn, so for example, Wojtyla thinks, part of the virtue of love. And it seems to me that one way of saying, or a different way of saying that sexual integrity is needed for those who want to really realize the good of marriage would be to say that these virtues are needed in order to realize the good of marriage. Uh, speaking also of the sexual integrity argument, another point, is that there is, of course, a really big intra-Catholic debate going on these days about the topic of annulment, uh, primarily having to do with uh, annulment procedures, procedures for seeking a declaration of nullity of one's uh, marriage or a putative marriage. Uh, sometimes this debate has to do with more than just procedures. Sometimes it has to do with what could constitute grounds for an annulment. And the sexual integrity argument makes me wonder whether a, a history of premarital sexual activity, especially whether a history of maybe a lot of premarital sexual activity on the part of one or both members of a married couple could constitute some evidence, even if not conclusive evidence, for the nullity of a marriage due to defect of consent. Um, finally, regarding this chapter, I want to add a suggestion that I don't think that 
this natural law argument based on sexual integrity is the only possible or even only the, the only strong natural law argument against sex outside of marriage. I would again suggest uh, that Carl Wojtyla in Love and Responsibility uh, has some good insights into perhaps another way of looking at this. Uh, another way of explaining why we should think that sex outside of marriage is at odds with the authentic good of human persons, insofar as it necessarily treats them as mere instruments or means to the pursuit of various kinds of pleasure, rather than as persons capable being persons of pursuing real goods, things that are real goods of the person. Finally, a few things about chapter five. I think there's a really good implicit argument here against allowing same-sex couples to adopt children. That, of course, even before the legalization of same-sex marriage was kind of a hot um, legal topic in our country. Um, and uh, for example, Catholic social services offices in a few places in the country have had to go out of the adoption business because they were being forced by states to be willing to place children with same-sex couples. Um, what I'm suggesting at is that if, as Lee and George say, counterfeit marriages, same-sex so-called marriages, are bad for society as a whole, in part because recognizing them miseducates society regarding the real meaning of marriage, then it seems to me that a fortiori, it's bad for a child to grow up in a household constituted by a counterfeit marriage, or even by a relationship that many people think could become <coughs> such a marriage, like a same-sex marriage in which the couple don't claim to be married. Um, I would note just to make this clear, that I don't think that this means that only married couples, opposite sex married couples, should be allowed to adopt or foster children. But it does mean that those in counterfeit marriages or in relationships that are like counterfeit marriages shouldn't. Uh, no one thinks that a pair of elderly sisters or a community of religious running an orphanage constitute a marital communion. So when people in that kind of situation adopt a child, there's no room for confusion regarding the meaning of marriage on the part of the child. But when a same-sex couple adopts a child, um, or even someone who's you know, known to be uh, uh, someone who uh, has homosexual attractions and who embraces those attractions, um, uh, but who isn't currently in a relationship, uh, it seems to me that when even, even if such a single person adopts a child, there could be big problems down the road. So I think, think certainly there are some implications here for kind of adoption morality, adoption ethics, and also for what adoption law should look like. Regarding the constitutional argument, regarding uh, Lee and George's argument that the Constitution doesn't provide a right to same-sex marriage, I'd like to suggest that the argument can be made even stronger, specifically the argument against the claim that the 14th Amendment somehow guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. Um, the two clauses of the 14th Amendment, as Lee and George explain, that are appealed to in pro-same-sex marriage constitutional arguments are the uh, uh, due process clause, guaranteeing due process of the law, and the equal protection clause. It seems to me that these clauses have fairly narrow and restricted meanings. First of all, with regard to due process, to claim a due process right to same-sex marriage 
you have to claim that there's such a thing as substantive due process. And although the notion of substantive due process is thoroughly embedded in modern constitutional law and probably can't ever be gotten rid of, I nevertheless think that it's totally incoherent. I don't think there is such a thing as substantive due process. I think it's like talking about a square circle. Secondly, with regard to the Equal Protection Clause, I think that equal <laughs> protection means equal protection. So I think a, a proper application of the Equal Protection Clause would be to say, for example, that you can't have laws that protect whites from being murdered while winking at murders of blacks, lynchings, and so on. One way of seeing that the 14th Amendment doesn't provide broad protection against any kind of unjust discrimination that one wants to protect against is to point to the fact that the same people who push the 14th Amendment also push the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote regardless of race. If the 14th Amendment were a kind of all-purpose prohibition of discrimination, of, of unjust discrimination, then it would provide the right to vote, since preventing people from voting on the basis of race is, I think, clearly unjust discrimination. So I think that on an originalist ground, and also on textualist grounds, one can show that the 14th Amendment has even less to do with whether same-sex marriage should be legalized than um, Lee and George think that it does. Finally, on page 122, Lee and George say that what's desired by pro-same-sex marriage activists is public endorsement. And uh, among other things, they appeal to the wording of a number of federal and state court pro-same-sex marriage rulings to, to show that this is the case. I just want to point out that since the book was written, we had last summer's Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court imposing legalized same-sex marriage on the whole country. And I want to note that if you scan the uh, majority opinion by Justice Kennedy, you'll see lots and lots of references to dignity. Uh, at some point, I went through and counted them with the help of my browser, and I, I can't remember what the number was, but it was more than a few. Uh, in fact, probably the line in Kennedy's opinion that was most quoted in the days following the decision was the closing line. And Kennedy's closing line was that the petitioners, quote, ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Unquote. So I think it's absolutely correct to say that, in essence, what's going on in the pro-marriage redefinition movement is a desire simply to have one's relationship called marriage by society. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.